Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You. We're an expert and a noob, boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host, Kev Kozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? Well, I think the appropriate course of action at this point is to fly this podcast right into a death machine. But until we do so, why don't we get one last episode for the road? Okay, that makes sense. As long as neither of us go completely crazy, forget to shave, and, and, and desperate try and blow up everything and everybody around us, we should be all right. And one of those people that is around us is our guest this week, which is Carl. Say hello, Carl. Hi, how you doing? Doing very well, thank you. How are you doing? Great. Fabulous. It's excellent to have you back on the podcast. Um, now, we can we can skip our usual introduction. We've done that before. And I think we can probably just crack straight on. So, um it feels redundant asking for an episode summary of an episode that's as well known as this one, but let's do it anyway. Kev, would you care to give us our episode summary? All right. Uh, the USS Enterprise picks up the distress signal from the USS Constellation. Uh, Kirk and Scotty and McCoy beam aboard and find Commodore Matt Decker, who has been driven insane by a giant ship that has destroyed um, several two planets in a four-planet solar system already. One of those planets had the rest of his crew on it as he tried to beam them to safety and wound up, uh, ironically, dooming them. Uh, so he's gone insane. He and McCoy get beamed back to the ship where Matt Decker takes command and tries to pile the Enterprise and destroy the Doomsday Machine that is now coming for the remaining two planets, but uh, is ineffective, but he can't really quite grasp that fact. Uh, eventually, Spock and Kirk, uh, who is still on the damaged ship, are able to convince him to be, or convince the crew to subdue him. Uh, he instead pilots a shuttlecraft into the machine, killing himself but slightly weakening it, giving Kirk the idea to set the damaged constellation into the machine itself and blow it up. Uh, he does so, and after a tense sequence of Kirk might not make back the Enterprise in time, Kirk does make it back in time. The constellation blows up and takes the Doomsday Machine with it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So. That's what we have this week. Um, general thoughts first, I think. So, uh, Carl, how did you find this one? Oh, this is this is like my favorite episode of TOS, probably. Um, Hard-pressed to think of one I like quite as much as this, largely because it just is everything I love about that specific series. Um, the, the handmade quality to it is uh, top-notch. Uh, the Doomsday Machine itself is probably one of my favorite inventions of the show. Um and you know chain of command stuff uh just a nice big tense space battle uh, and there's kind of a sense of adventure to it uh throughout the whole thing so yeah i love everything about this episode excellent lovely uh we know you requested this one well in time and it's probably not tremendously difficult to work out why but kev you're coming to it fresh so um how did you find it in the first viewing yeah i just want to uh, elaborate on your comment did you think it's a funny story when i first met carl in person for the first time um we talked about this podcast when it was just starting uh, about a year and a half ago now. And you said you'd love to talk to the Doomsday Machine. And while we did get you on earlier in season one, I you've had the Doomsday Machine marked for that year and a half. <laughs> and uh, after seeing it, uh, well, it's, that makes total sense to me because this is a magnificent episode. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I was just completely enthralled throughout. It's action packed. It's intense. Um, I was posting on Blue Sky about watching it, and someone commented that this feels like a, a TOS movie in just one episode running time. Mm -hmm. And I get it. It's Everything is fully um, huge drama, huge action, huge character moments. And with with the exception of the conspicuous lack of Uhura and uh, Chekhov, it's, everyone else <laughs> in the cast feels like they're really giving it their all. So yeah, it's, a, it's definitely top shelf Star Trek. Yeah. Um, also, just like you know, speaking of the cast, it's also a great case of the, like, you know, McCoy, Spock, Kirk, uh, triptych, you know, the logic versus the emotion versus the action. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to argue with any of that. You'll be unsurprised to discover. It's it's just one of those episodes, isn't it? There's the, there's nothing that isn't, isn't gripping. And yet it's basically also um, a bottle show. You know, it's all just standing sets. Everything, you know, everything in the Constellation is just the Enterprise set. With like uh, bent pipes and stuff shoved in the yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Noticeably more shadow than we're used to seeing about the place. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's this was an incredible, an incredibly cheap episode to shoot. It it actually came in 
under budget, which almost no episodes of Star Trek wow. did in the first two seasons. Um, yeah, it, it, and and that's even with all like the optical effects and and you know the space battles and all the yeah. rest of it. It, it. it still came in cheap, probably, uh, and big... yet and yet it's got everything you could possibly ask for. Yeah. Like a, I think a big reason I really specifically love this episode is because of just how economic the filmmaking is. It's um, and like they they really really succeeded building up and selling this doomsday machine you know matt decker calls it the devil <laughs> and it's just like they're, they're they're telling you that you're gonna see something cool and then they show you and it's a the cheapest thing that's ever been made and also incredibly cool uh kev do you know how they made the doomsday machine i don't that's, um they took a windsock which is one of those <laughs> orange flags that you'll see on like a airfield to tell you which way the wind's blowing, they took one of those, they dipped it in cement, and they painted it, and that's the entire Doomsday Machine. It's so that's good, cool, and like it, it totally sells. It's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The whole thing must have cost them like twenty quid. It's definitely yeah. one of the reasons that this episode came in cheap. And yeah. the, the the little model of the um, of the constellation is that it's a model. It's a toy. Uh, which they just distressed a bit because that saved a lot of money as well. <laughs> so they, they could get a good sense of scale and perspective with their um, with their ice cream cone. But uh, yeah, it's it's that whole thing about, you know, necessity being the mother of invention. Like, you know, they had to bring this in cheap. They had to do it. And yet, yet nothing really, like we can make jokes about like worms or, or uh, like ice cream cones or whatever, but nothing really looks like, the doomsday machine there's, it's yeah. got a very unique look to it and there's i think that really helps to simplicity. sell it it just it, it's scarier because it just is so unfeeling and simple and basic and it's just it comes up and it eats you and that's it like yeah it, and it's it, not just like it, another it rocket ship or something it's it's yeah. not like nomad even which is just like a probe or whatever yeah. it is really something that just doesn't look anything like what we would be conditioned yeah. to expect alien strange new <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it it's purely geometric it's just a cone yeah. it's like there's nothing to it beyond the, the blue exterior and the red interior and i think this like you said it's just so cold and simple it and like the idea of the thing is so mindless like this like ai run amok that's just like not even run amok just doing its job and doing it too well and just can't be it can't there's no voice to it there's no re reason to it yeah you can't re you just have to blow it up because it's just going too far in whatever it was designed to do and that's just like it's so chillingly like removed from any sort of like emotion and the design reflects that absolutely and i think this is one of the occasions that less is more you know we don't find anything out about its origins there's a bit of speculation but nothing's ever proven one way or the other there's no uh like voice or whatever which is good like it would be really easy to have tried to give it a presence by having like a computer voice or something or some kind of like interface with the machine itself we don't get any of that it simply is it's just this sort of implacable force and that's what makes it so incredibly effective in, in what it does and similar to how we talked about in the changeling how it I like how we don't know where Nomad really came. Well, we know how Nomad came from, but not what combined with it. And similar to the Apple, where we don't know how the computer in that episode came from, I really enjoy how the Doomsday Machine just remains a mystery. Like, it's a mystery that doesn't even need to be solved. It's eerier, left unsolved. And also, from going back to the theme of, econo of economy, it's just more efficient to just have it exist and be what it is instead of having a whole backstory for it. Like, here is a threat, and we gave enough backstory so you know what it is and what it's trying to do that makes it have that emotional, terrifying effect, but you don't need anything else to it. You don't need to go even deeper, because what would that serve for the purpose of the story? And, and that kind of leanness and efficiency is exactly what kind of colors this script all the way through. There is nothing extraneous here. Uh, there's a couple of points which I would argue are maybe slightly less than perfect, but I, overall, it's just such a lean script that just the, uh, doesn't waste any time. We're, we're allowed to understand everything without having to go into, I was going to say without having to go into histrionics. That's not completely correct, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, there's definitely some histrionics, but you know, but without having to go into great reams of exposition or, or 
or you know whatever and and that again helps to carry the momentum of the script we, we get more than enough to understand everything that's going on but we don't get bogged down by too many explanations too much technobabble too much exposition and so on yeah i think uh the having to bring up the h-bomb twice to make the very obvious direct comparison is mm. a bit much but <laughs> it's still pretty good <laughs> yeah it is a great little i mean yeah they put a real fine point on the thematic idea they're trying to convey with um these giant machines that kill people maybe they're bad <laughs> um but yeah it is just it just still works because i mean you believe it and that's definitely like something that would be a, such a going concern in the 60s is anti-nuclear armament and i mean a little i don't know how bold it would be for a 60s primetime television show to be saying that but it may be a little bold because yeah, it was pretty bold yeah, it's it is, and obviously this message that still resonates today. But yeah, it's just it works. It's effective. I mean, we wouldn't want to create a doomsday machine in real life, except for I guess maybe some Silicon Valley tech, like the same Silicon Valley tech people that are creating real life Palantirs and Skynets. Well, the other thing again, it's it's that thing about historical context. But you know, we're four years out from the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is a really live issue, and you couldn't have done this. A straight drama in 1967 you would have to have some kind of cloak of sci-fi or some kind of allegorical element to it. the allegorical element here works like yeah the, the 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 line about the nuclear weapons and and you know doomsday machines it's a bit clunky the first time it's unnecessary the second time but it does get the point across and you know whilst this is kind of an allegory for that sort of like mutually assured destruction it's a much better analogy or sorry um a much better one than we had uh for the apple which was just really kind of clunky obvious kind of you know garden of eden nonsense yeah that's what they were getting at well yeah we love a bit of file we all worship um but but here, uh, you know, the, it's pretty much allowed to stand for itself. But yeah, historically, like networks are really touchy on this stuff and anything which could be perceived as being critical of America's stance when it came to nuclear weapons was definitely uh, verboten. There was no way that that could be allowed uh, because it was still such a live political issue. Obviously, Vietnam is still going on. There was still a fear that that that, um, that could escalate into a nuclear conflict at this point. And the whole idea of game theory as a way of controlling and stopping that kind of catastrophe was still also a real issue, but also becoming uh, dis maybe not discredited at this stage, but but I mean the Cuban Missile Crisis had more or less proven that like that kind of technocrat te technocratic uh, approach to uh, solving problems wasn't one that could be depended on. You know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of very live political issues that Star Trek had to dodge around, and so being able to set it to this kind of um allegorical uh ice cream cone that was that was the best that they could do and for 1967 it was pretty challenging i just really appreciate that it's I mean, it speaks to i think how every element of the show is like really on its game like not only is the script like efficient lean and very action-packed it's also just so much more on its mind as well um like there's also the moby dick element of just we have our guest character um, played by Wyndham. Oh, I've lost the character name already. Matt Decker. William Wyndham. William Wyndham's the actor. Yeah, Matt Decker's the character, right? Uh, who's just destroyed by trying to avenge his crew and the survivor's guilt and all of that. That's also just like a great dynamic for this episode to be playing with. I, I had totally forgotten the detail that he beamed them all to a planet to get them away from the ship. And then it ate the planet and he heard them all die. Like that is just mm. so chilling. And again, it just really sells his entire, you know, everything he does from that point forward, everything good, everything bad. It's you totally get why he's doing it. So yeah, it's yeah. It's so I, good. <laughs> I, I think his performance is the best guest performance we've had yeah. on the show. So far. Oh man. He he feels so modern. It feels very like post even post New Hollywood what he's doing. Mm -hmm. He feels like he walked off the set of the thing and yeah. walked into this episode twenty years in the past. It's just 
like not just the disheveled look and the weary eyes, but also just like the attitude. It just feels like in contrast to the rest of the yeah. cast in this episode, he which are like in very Star Trek nature, very stiff. And even when Shatner's emoting, he is doing it in a very precise and yes, yes. over the top way. Yeah. Um, Wyndham is just kind of a mess in his yeah. performance, like it could, like an intentional controlled mess that is just like a live wire. And it just feels like, like nothing else the show has had before. He's doing, he does like, he, he does such great business when he's got the captain's chair, he's playing with those weird little, uh, command mm-hmm. card whatever i don't know what they do the little cards yeah <laughs> like the atari cartridges yes yeah but he's just like he's using those as an actor to kind of sell exactly what you're talking about this like loose live wire element of that like he could kind of do anything right now um and like somehow just doing business with those cards carries that across it's it's mm-hmm. it's a great touch and it's so nice that he's given proper motivation like um you're completely correct that the whole the whole point of him beaming his crew down, which he thought was like an act of mercy to try and save everything. Um, and then they ended up dying anyway, and he had to listen to it. On the one hand, that's a really horrific detail. But on the other hand, it really gives him uh, a perspective. We have met so many crazy people in Star Trek, and we're not even quite halfway through the second season. <laughs> and there are going to be so many more to come. And very rarely are they given that kind of motivation very rarely do they have that sort of reasoning behind what it is that uh drove them insane and oh he's mad is like the weakest character motivation you could possibly have but here it isn't because he's actually given that perspective you know he's he's been through what is undoubtedly a massive trauma and you know one that he is directly responsible for he made a judgment call and it was the wrong one Um, and so of course we get to see the psychological impact that has on the character it makes such a difference to that whole side of the character it isn't just "Mm, i'm mad me or no no lock me up i can't see the wood for the trees it's just like you know, no, he has a real reason to be this unhinged, and it makes all the difference when it comes to the credibility of the episode. I'm wondering if this is, he's our first example of, like, the evil admiral in Star Trek. Um, I'm trying to think of maybe court martial or menagerie who might have had antagonistic people on a higher level, but I don't, I think this is the first person who is a higher command rank than captain, who is deliberately causing a lot of problems and their sympathy for this character at the end throughout the episode but especially at the end but still it's even only being most of the modern version of this franchise i i understand that oh there's a lot of bad typically admirals in this franchise (laughs) um but yeah is this our first one or am i forgetting something even if it's half the commodore we haven't had we haven't had exactly that. We had some stuff in Dagger of the Mind where Kirk right. was being overridden. Yeah, court martial for sure, menagerie for sure. Um, I think that's most of them. I'm just scanning down the list here to see if there's anything else that stands out. Uh, we're not really at the phase of the series where there's that much interaction with Star uh, with Starfleet at this point. And again, I kind of like that. I kind of like the fact that it they don't have that much contact because it does make the ship feel like it's much more out there and that it, it really is, you know, on the final frontier. And when they encounter inexplicable problems like this, and indeed like Nomad, I suppose, as well, we do have that sense that it is a big, frightening place out there and we don't necessarily understand everything that we are going to encounter and that really helps to push star trek sorry i realize this is a slightly broader point uh, rather than one specific to this episode but it really helps to push star trek out of that kind of cliche wagon train to the stars i mean we've had very direct kind of western parallels here there and everywhere uh especially when any time a minor gets mentioned you just mm-hmm. know that's where that's that's where it's uh that's where it's going to end up but let's take devil in the dark as kind of like the urtext of that um uh, but i really love it when they actually push the boundaries of what the show can be and what the show is capable of doing and i think that's one of the reasons that uh the doomsday machine is such a great episode because oh, yeah. even though we've had like an alien probe before even though we've had uh like implacable computers before like val just 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 very very recently um we've never had anything like this before and that broadening of what it is star trek can do really makes this episode land especially when you're watching it in sequence like this yeah to go back to your point about like star command being um 
in the distance. I mean, that's a huge part of this episode is they can barely get a message out to them and then they can't later, like a few seconds later. And, and what that message would be is not even save these planets. It would be, these planets are doomed, but we got to clean up this mess and make sure the next solar system over isn't doomed. Like it's very much ineffectual in a way that's like not really even a criticism of it. Like what, could exist that would be able to span all this distance of space and be able to get there in time and stop it. But yeah, it really makes you feel like they're all like they are on their own out there. And if there's one time we know our crew are going to uh, really flourish, it's when they are, you know, put up against these kind of uh, monsters, these kind of creatures that, you know, when their backs against the wall, uh, it also really, really helps to bring out the best in the cast as well. Um, yeah, famously, uh, William Shatner was not a happy man uh, during this uh, time of the show being shot. Uh, he was in the middle of a divorce. He was very, very touchy about uh, Leonard Nimoy's success. Um, it was not a happy ship. But if the result of that unhappiness is we get these kind of performances out of Shatner, <laughs> and far be it for me to say that it's worth it i would never want somebody's personal life to be sacrificed in order to get a, a decent performance on a, on a tv show but at the same time like you know everybody is really upping their game here and whether that's because there's such a brilliant guest star whether it's because of the quality of the script or what's going on behind the scenes maybe it's all of them but it really does bring out the absolute best in everyone here Something something I found really interesting about Shatner's performance in this one on rewatch is that you like you know you remember this episode you remember how good he is at the serious parts he ends up getting a lot of the comic relief lines in this one um, probably just because the balances that Spock and McCoy are dealing with uh, uh, Decker but he's got a lot of like you know anytime you guys want to fix the transporter would be really great okay right. thank you yeah <laughs> um, and like again it, it's the comic relief in this one is also it, it's still tense. It's still playing, you know, it, it doesn't like pause everything to do a joke. The joke is just in, in media res as, as it's going, you know, it's, it's um, yeah, it's really cool. And like, it doesn't even stick out to you that Shatner's getting most of the funny lines in this episode. <laughs> yeah. That ending I mean, we'll have more to discuss, but I, let's just get to the ending now since it's been brought up. That ending is just incredibly thrilling. Oh. I mean, you've set up the tractor beam, the countdown timer. Um, he flips it, and then the the cross-cutting with Sulu doing the countdown, with Scotty dealing with 10 different fires that need to be put out. And like I said, Shatner's moment that is both like funny but also incredibly tense. You feel the fear in those line reads of any time... Like, fear in a character that usually doesn't feel fear. Like, Kirk is usually kept very brave and bravado and buttoned down, but you feel it in that scene, like the mask slipping just a bit as he thinks he might actually die this time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's just so good. Yeah. It's a spectacular piece of work for him. Um, and, you know, it would be easy for that uh, kind of comedy or that kind of moment at the end to undercut the drama of what's going on, but it, it really doesn't. It's, it's almost, I mean, I always hesitate to use the word subtle when it comes to uh, the acting styles of Mr. Shatner, uh, but it is almost subtle in the way that he does start to uh, he does start to stress out. Um, and I, I just, I mean, I just generally love Scotty basically swearing the air blue in a very uh, G-rated kind of fashion, of course, uh, whilst he desperately tries, tries to get the damn transporter to work again. Um, and even those little like bangs and flashes in the transporter room with the smoke sort of curling up around the thing, it's all really just well put together. It's, its uh, as we've many times said in this uh, podcast, it's simple stagecraft, but it still looks incredibly effective. It works. It does ramp up the tension. And I think you have a point with like Shatner being subtle. Like I think him going so big so much of the time, it gives him that room to put subtleties inside the bigness, like, yeah. and make it stand out. So like, I guess it a quite one like that does feel subtle compared to the ceiling he has set for himself in terms of how big he can go. Mm. And also, when he can go big, he can put little things inside the going big that like help dig it in. I, yeah, I do think subtle is correct, at least on a relative scale. 
while we're talking performances, I think also Nimoy as Spock is just fully locked in. Oh, man. I mean, when is he not? But his scenes with Wyndham are just like incredible repartee. The the detail I love about that is once uh, Decker starts trying to snag command from him, Nimoy never looks at him. He's always looking mm-hmm. straight forward. It's such like it's such a good Spock. Just like okay, I gotta. I got to think my way out of this now and I'm mm. not going to give this guy so much as a look. It's, it's a great choice to just never look at him once they actually, uh, you know, start, uh, start, uh, butting heads. It's, it's awesome. It does lead to my one slight criticism of this episode when, um, Spock is desperately trying to get, uh, Decker to relinquish command back to him. Um, there's a whole thing about, uh, McCoy sort of maybe being able to get him certified as sort of medically unfit because of his psychological condition. Um, and and so Spock says, of course, you'll be uh, asked to like back this up in your logs or within an examination or whatever. And McCoy says, well, you know, I haven't had a chance to examine him. And so that's, that's the wrong way around. You relieve yeah. him. Then you examine him and you've proved your point. That's how it would work. In, 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 but but um, they stall it out. And it's necessary for the drama of the episode, but they, it, that's not quite handled as well as it could be because he's clearly nuts. Anyone yeah. can see he's nuts. Everyone can see he's nuts. He's nuts. My, uh, he shouldn't be there. And like, like you know, particularly in that kind of situation, Spock appears to be uh, sort of obstinate and kind of attached to the rule book more because of the plot than because it makes any sense. Like under most circumstances, he would have just given him a, a Vulcan neck pinch, dragged him out of the chair, got the Enterprise to safety and worried about the fallout from it later. But he can't do that because otherwise the episode's going to end 20 minutes early. Yeah. So <laughs> we have to kind of go through the rigmarole of going, well, you'll have to prove this. Oh, dash. Well, I guess that's that avenue completely exhausted then. Um, it's it's slightly clunky. It doesn't, it doesn't derail the episode by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and it's good that they do actually raise it, but it, it just, it feels like, yeah, your resolution is sitting right there and you just breeze on past it. Uh, I was going to say my, my one criticism of the episode is pretty much that same scene. It's uh, when McCoy goes, Spock, do something. And it's like McCoy doesn't do something himself. Could have, <laughs> you know, it could have just come back five minutes later with a phaser and be like, whoops, I tripped and stunned him. Sorry. Or something. I don't know. But <laughs> the hypo spray yeah. went off in my hand, your honor. Again, I get and like, again, what, what plays out is still really strong and I get why they didn't go that route, but it's, it, it does feel a little bit like, you know, maybe McCoy should have broken some rules. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. I, my read on both of those moments is and this is maybe being a little overly generous um is that because he's already pulled rank like doing anything of that sort like relieving him and then giving the medical examination and not following like if he's going to follow the rules 100 we have to follow 100 otherwise we wind up with another court martial episode yeah like and Once they enough. could have had a line to ex- say that explicitly that if we don't do this by the book he could have us all fired but yeah, you're right that it it doesn't it's still there's an emotional sense that's lacking there. And I think a little bit more of drawing that out would have helped. Mm-hmm. It does it does get a good performance out of DeForest Kelly though. So that's at yeah. least something. His <laughs> yeah. his absolute frustration at not being able to uh move the night move the dial on on what's happening. And and like uh like like you said, like the the whole uh, Spock do something scenes like yeah, he's right. Do something. Um, and so, you know, again, it's that thing about everybody has a legitimate point of view. Every character has a legitimate point of view in the episode. And that makes it feel very authentic. Like McCoy's frustrations are the audience's frustrations. So it's understandable that we sympathize with them. Uh, you know, what Spock is doing is is technically correct. But in this case, not the best type of correct. Um, but, you know, he still has an understandable and a relatable point of view. Matt Decker has a relatable point of view as well, even if it's, whoops, I killed my crew and I'm nuts. You know, it's uh, which is fine. But again, everybody has a point of view and a perspective. So everybody has a reason to be behaving the way that they are. So they're properly motivated. And otherwise, okay, it just it just makes all those scenes work. Absolutely. Um, and even like our supporting cast is like so on point here. Um, Duhan playing the stress of the situation while also the professionalism of his character really well uh that just like i love how 
calm and stoic he is when Kirk asks him to rig a bomb to the ship they're currently in. And then, as you said, the G-rated swearing that he gets to at the end when things have really gotten tense is just so fun. Yeah, it's nice to see an expanded role for Scotty as well. Um, you know, it is an episode where it's logical that he's going to be kind of in the thick of it, but they really do make an effort to ensure that he's part of what's going on. You know, he's working hard in terms of uh, trying to find solutions, both on the Constellation and once he gets back to the Enterprise as well. And, you know, he's really, you know, pivotal to the, the rescue operation as well. It's nice to see that happening rather than it just being a bit of a hand wave where he presses a couple of buttons or whatever. Like, there's a real sense that he's he's down in the guts of it. But I must say, it's also really nice to see Kirk doing that as well on the Enterprise. Uh, sorry, on the uh, Constellation. Like, we get to see him up to his elbows in, in panels. He's rewiring stuff. He's fixing stuff. And it's not often that we get to see that side of Kirk. You know, he's usually just there like giving the commands or whatever. And here it's really refreshing to be able to see him actually get down and dirty and into kind of the bowels of the ship. It helps to really give weight to the fact that he understands what it is he's asking other people to do because we see that he's actually capable of doing it himself. That's a really nice little bit of characterization for Kirk, and it's not one that we get very often. On further supporting characters, um, I mean, as I said, Sulu doesn't have much plot wise to do in this episode but he delivers that countdown at the end really well good work from george yeah. cage is like doing the business of the role required and i feel bad for nichelle nichols missing this episode because her guest star replacement in her role um gets some great little techno babble and like very professional dialogue as well just like again doing the running the ship business but in a very confident i mean it's a great act a great performance from that day player who I should probably look up what her name is, but uh, yeah, it's is you could tell Nichelle Nichols would have fun just like in those three scenes of just really snappy uh, dialogue. Well, this time it's Nichelle Nichols's fault that she isn't in this episode. Uh, she had a singing engagement and so wasn't available for it. Uh, that's why she's not in this episode. Um, however, uh, her replacement was basically used as a threat. Uh, so uh, basically a very very similar character uh, delivering lines in a very very similar way um, was more or less sort of a, a bit of a finger wag at, at Nichelle Nicole's lack of availability saying listen if you're not going to be available for, for us you know there are other things we can do here and she was always available again after this so uh, but but on this particular occasion um, yeah she she uh, she went singing rather than uh, turning up for uh, Star Trek uh, this is a total tangent, but I just find this a little funny. Um, I was trying to Google why Nichelle Nichols uh, missed this episode. And thank you for explaining that, JG. Because all I could find with my research is a 13-year-old forum post where someone asked the question. And then instead of providing an answer, um, other people, it devolved into people pedantically correcting each other and then just making very leering remarks about her outfit in Mirror Mirror. And I don't know how they got to those points that fast, but... <laughs> I it, it, it was very eye-opening. Oh, the internet has always been really bad. It's just more people have access to it now. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. Well, at least we've managed to... I hope if anybody is listening from a forum post 13 years ago, now you have your answer. <laughs> Something we glossed over slightly um, earlier on uh, when we were talking about the design of the ship. Um, and it's something that I can't organically transition back to, but I forgot to mention, and so I'm just going to mention it now. Um, the special effects in 1967 are a lot better than the 21st century CGI special effects. Ah, uh, um, yeah. CGI special effects are just garbage. They're so bad. Um, and whereas at least the original, like, okay, fine, it's from 1967. It's not like slick CGI or whatever, but it, it does have that, like, slightly charming kind of handmade feel to it. it it's of a piece with everything else that's going on as a general rule the cgi special effects uh on the streaming versions don't bother me too much because most of them are just like ship flybys and you know okay fair yeah. enough but but the ones here just look terrible it's mm. not the worst yeah. thing i've seen in those remasters but it's also it's not great <laughs> i really hate when the remasters like change like almost the intent of it which i guess isn't really true here at least you keep the same design but it just looks so different and it really removes a lot of the charm um i'm glad the memory alpha wiki has like pictures of what the original looked like so i get a good sense of it yeah, yeah. and it still looks like it has that charm to it, it has that windsock 
dyed blue charm. Yeah. That looks just, yeah, you understand it. And the CGI just looks like CGI goof. I, you can tell it's just there's, not there. There's an episode, and I don't remember which one this is. Uh, JG, you'll probably know the second I mention it, but there's one where somebody turns out to be a robot, and there's like robot parts in their stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, that'd be uh, Mud's Women. Okay, so then the the original uh, special effects, it's just like they just glued some robot parts to somebody's stomach. But then the remaster, it's like they have this little CGI switchboard that's kind of basically just a JPEG that's overlaid over the, the original effects. And it's just like that just that's just as cheap and just as chintzy in a different time period. And that's how I feel about most of the remaster stuff. So it, it kind of speaks to the whole thing that that one specific bad effect <laughs> yeah. yeah i absolutely. think what was the worst something we encountered where it was like a whole spaceship like the design was entirely changed and that was just offensive to me was it the, the ones... maneuver, something like that Ugh. the ones where they make the backgrounds less colorful is insane to me why would you do yeah. that <laughs> uh yeah i think it was one of the really early ones and there was one i think there was I think there was one where there was like a ship that was designed but never got uh, put on screen. Um, and then in the remastered version, they went ahead and just put it on screen. That might have been the Carbonite Maneuver, actually. Um, yeah, and that's just, I don't know. It's so, it, 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 I wouldn't be so pretentious as to refer to myself as a historian, but my degree is in English and history, and it chafes against my the history side of things. Uh, it, it's it's very ahistorical, and it just, it's just, it's, it's just not right. Right. I mean, granted, the ship it replaced, I think I remember, was just like a color and a circle. But still, yeah. that is like what that's it was. That's what it did, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So like, I mean, props for this for keeping the same alien cone design that is like mockable, but also like true. And like, as we said, emotionally works for what this episode is. Mm. Um but yeah, it's it still just feels so wrong to have all those like Lionsgate logo style moving gears inside of it or whatever. <laughs> it's just not right. At least uh, visually, the rest of the episode I think looks really good. I love, like, I think it's directed very well. We get plenty of my beloved. Um, the ship is hit and everyone shakes around as the camera shakes. Yeah shots there's a couple that it's just like we're gonna tilt the camera and bill you have to pretend that you're trying to pull yourself across the room <laughs> that are great that's <laughs> really good yeah. yeah there's a couple where it stays tilted and god it looks so good <laughs> you can tell everything's off kilter yeah and they do such a good job of of uh dressing the sets as well you know uh all the lighting on the constellation is really well put together like the half open doors all that stuff it's really really inexpensive stuff but it's just incredibly effective at setting the scene and and making sure that we're really in that world you know that we're really part of what's going on so when scotty's spouting x y and z about you know well yeah i can probably fix this i definitely can't fix that it just all feels much more realistic because there's there's depth and shadow to the environment um than they're in and although it's a very minor thing i really like the fact that when we're on the enterprise we're just on the bridge and when we're on the constellation we're just down in the engine room. It makes it really nice and clear in terms of understanding what's going on. Um, I think we only have one other scene off the bridge in the Enterprise, which is the, um, okay, slightly comic uh, fight when Matt Decker makes a break for it. Um, <laughs> punches that miss by good three feet, but the guard still falls over anyway. Um, you know, uh, but other than that, that's all we have. We just have that very tight focus on the bridge. Uh, so not, But not only does it help to keep the action uh, really nice and clear and make it obvious what ship we're on. It really helps to add that focus. If we'd gone down to sick bay or if we'd gone to the briefing room or whatever, it kind of it broadens the scope of the out. So the focus slips a little bit, but just by keeping it on those two very specific locations right up until the end when then we get eventually the transporter room and, and Scotty and the Jeffries tube, it really it just adds to that kind of pressure cooker environment. Oh yeah. Um, I just want to, speaking of like fun little special effects to reflect damage, the Scotty in that tube, I mean, all they do is just put in five sparklers and smoke bombs and just yes. start setting them off. And it's just the most tense thing you've ever seen. Like, <laughs> how is he going to fix all of these things? And he does. And it's, but it's just, 
really it just looks so good off of so little there's always uh and this is something i love but the i, I think it was a gene l coon trick which is to always just say that something is going to be a miracle to pull off or mm-hmm. they, they use miracles a lot they just and again it's like you don't know what this thing is they could tell you anything about it they could say it's really easy but because they're saying it's really hard to do you you go with it <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah I love, I mean, we get a lot of recurring bits this episode. Spot closing's illogical. Bones says, I'm not an engineer. I'm a, I'm a doctor, not an engineer. But then, of course, you have Scotty's now recurring line of saying, if anything more happens, this is going to blow up. And it still <laughs> works. It's, I mean, you do believe it. Like you said, yeah. if, if anything happens to it, it could explode. And then I love the callback later on where it's like, yeah, the ship's about to blow up anyway. So if you want to blow it up, that's easy that's work. Great. Yes. <laughs> Do you think you could overload these engines or something? And he's like, yeah, no, they're, they're already there. <laughs> yeah. Again, just perfect and economical storytelling. And a good sense of the trust that these characters have in each other as well. You know, yeah. that sense that, you know, whatever they say to each other, it's just like, yep, yeah, no, whatever. Like, there's no... There's no sort of obfuscation. There's no kind of sugarcoating it. It's just like two people who trust each other just being able to communicate the bare facts. And again, it brings us back to that that theme of, of sort of leanness and efficiency in the script. It comes right down to the way that the characters interact with each other. And again, it just makes it that much more convincing. Kirk has a really good, uh, somewhere in the episode, he has a really good just like, well, Scotty, you earned your, you earned your pay for this week. It's it's just like mm-hmm. a good like what you're saying about they have trust in each other, and he's really patting him on the back in that moment. It's just this little throwaway joke line. It's 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 a nice touch. Oh yeah, I there are definitely other episodes that have room for these characters to debate each other. I mean, Bones and um, Spock debating are like the one of the staples of the show. But what I like about this episode is when you have the dual antagonists of both. Um, Decker and the titular machine, uh, all of our main characters have nothing to debate with each other, I guess, except for that one do something, as we mentioned earlier. But yeah, they're all on each other's side, on each other's team, and just fully with respect and deference to to each one another. And that just means that they can form a united front against these two threats coming from different direction. And it just makes it so effective and makes them seem so capable. And that capability, I think, is one of the things that really comes through in this episode. And, you know, these aren't really capable people who are doing their absolute best. And yet the only way they're actually able to defeat this threat is uh, basically luck, um, you know, and, and the, the um, you know, the, the suicide of somebody who appears to be clinically insane. Um, and I'm not saying that to be, you know, funny, but that's that's what it comes down to. Like somebody who's who's genuinely psychologically disturbed uh, decides that the only possible way that he can redeem himself is by sort of making the ultimate sacrifice. And by absolute blind luck, that happens to clue them in as to what it is that can destroy the planet killer. But, you know, if he just like bounced off the edge or crashed or Spock had been able to get a tractor beam on him and pull him back in, all of which are extremely plausible uh, scenarios in the in the episode. Like they would have lost their shot, they would have lost their one uh, blind luck shot to destroy the thing. As it happens, it comes off. But the fact that these are people who are at the top of their game, like the most experienced, the most uh, knowledgeable people in the whole of Starfleet, and there's basically nothing they can do except luck out. That kind of I don't know. It really works in this episode. It really helps to provide an engine that, again, you know, back to what I was saying before about the fact it's a big, scary galaxy out there. You just don't know what you're going to be able to cope with. And sometimes you can't engineer your way out of it. You can't logic your way out of it. You can't um, emotionally shout at it into submission. Sometimes it's just really, really lucky. I I mean, that's just such a great summary of a lot of things. I so I think it's a good time to pivot to talk about the music, which I is incredible for this episode. I noticed that uh, right at the top of this episode, the opening sting even has like a little additional thing to it. I don't I don't know how to describe it beyond that it just sounds more dangerous, but like they did something different with the sting at the top of this episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I was looking up is this the person who scored this episode is Sol Kaplan, who's done a lot of film scores as well. 
but uh vitally like this is he also he discovered this episode in the enemy within and no other episodes but i think what's key is that almost all of the music here is original to this episode save for 30 odd seconds of um a kirk's alexander courage's kirk's theme uh, this is per memory alpha and so i, I just gonna take their word on it but yes everything else besides that one sting is um all original score for this episode and it's apparently gonna get reused a bunch going forward which i mean fair dues because it's a wonderful score especially that end that very climactic scene during the countdown when it just like builds and builds and builds it's just so engaging and wonderful it's a phenomenal piece of work and yeah it's very very easy to understand why it's going to keep coming back again and again and like so kaplan isn't like a massive name and if you look at kind of his filmography i mean there's one or two bits that stand out on it um particularly spy who came in for the cold i suppose is is, is a big deal um but it's all kind of you know it none it's, when I say it's like an ordinary career, that sounds much ruder than I mean it to. It's just like, it's a like, you know, he worked in a bunch of movies. He was clearly like a really good uh, scorer. Um, and it seems almost like a bit of a shame in a way that, you know, probably this and the enemy within is, is sort of what he's known best for. But he's, you know, he's a really great composer and in, in a way it's a shame he didn't get the opportunity to do uh a bit more you know during his career he, he died in 1990 uh so you know quite a long time ago now but uh yeah it's it's just he seems to have been yeah really decent at what he did and you know the, if this score is anything to go by I, I do not know his scores from elsewhere i haven't had the chance to look them up but if this score is anything to go by you know like yeah he's a real talent yeah you're right i mean i said he directed he scored films but yeah, I didn't realize, you're right, I don't recognize any of these movies besides Spy Community of the Cold. I mean, I can guess what a movie called Titanic is about, but yeah, nothing else really rings <laughs> a bell. Um, anyways, I just also just found this, jumping back on his Wikipedia page, uh, his son directed The Accused, among other, like, again, nothing else really notable, but it is funny that he's directed The Accused. <laughs> As it seems like we're winding down, um, I just wanted to get these two last bullet points I found from researching, i.e. having memory alpha open out um, to go back to uh, Wyndham's sort of tick with the cassettes. Um, this is, he apparently picked that up from Humphrey Bogart in the Kane Mutiny. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Man. That's cool. Which is, I think, really <laughs> fun. I mean, Bogart as well, like that, that's sort of his thing is he felt like a much more modern actor than his time. Yeah. And yeah. so it, it does make sense. If he was, um, homaging that moment specifically, but also it feels like the rest of his performance as well after Bogart. Um, that is totally why he feels like not a breath of fresh air isn't the right term, because I do love the very like stoic and buttoned up performance in Star Trek generally, but like why he feels so different if he's doing a Bogart thing. Um, the other thing I just want to talk about is that this is one of the five 1968 star trek episodes that was well 1967 star trek episodes that was nominated for a 68 hugo and uh lost to sit on the edge of forever uh fair dues i'd probably give yeah I'd, yeah i'd give it to this over that but again understandable because it's we're comparing greats to greats yeah uh yeah i if i could pull it up again but like that is a like five episodes from this year were nominated for that award and it's all bangers. Um, I think a muck time is there as well. Uh, Trouble with triples you haven't gotten to yet is there. I would have to pull it up again to find out what the last one is, but it was also definitely a um, like really strong one. Oh, here it is. Uh, Mirror Mirror, of course. So yeah, um, yeah, it's award nominated and only could it could only have been beaten by other star trek episodes seems fair enough and well if we're at the point of uh talking about awards which have been nominated i suppose we can do our own nominations and uh score it at this stage uh so carl you're our guest so um out of 10 what would you care to give this episode oh this is this is a 10 out of 10 that's no question i like, like i said at the start of the episode this to me is just a perfect episode of star trek uh it's got everything I love about the show jammed into a single episode. So, um, yeah, 
10, 10. Okay, excellent. Full marks to start with. Now, Kev, I have a feeling I know where this is going to go, <laughs> but I'm going to have to ask the question anyway. Uh, what did you think of this one? How, how would you score it? Well, let's see. I did just say I think it's better than City on the Edge of Forever, an episode I gave a 10 to. So <laughs> my mathematical brain and uh, my very Spock-like brain will have to <laughs> follow soon and say 10. Okay, fair enough. So we have two 10 out of 10s. No, 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 no. I mean, yeah, I've already put it in the spreadsheet, JJ. You don't have to draw this out. <laughs> fine, fine. It's a 10 as well. All right, no mystery left. All right, lovely. Okay, so clean sweep. How many episodes have we got now, Kev, that have had full marks? There can all be like two or three, right? You're from our spreadsheet you? guru? No, from us, uh, from, from the whole thing, like 30 out of 30. I mean, I think it's just the muck time. Cause, okay. And bounce yeah. of error. So that's three. And yeah, I, I haven't kept track of the guest scores, unfortunately, but I'm pretty sure our guests on both those episodes agreed with us that 10 out of 10. Um, the only other 10s that have been marked are I put one for City on the Edge of Forever and I put one for Mirror Mirror, which were just roundups of your 9.5. So. Fair enough. That's fair enough. Excellent. Lovely. So a clean sweep for the Doomsday Machine. Lovely. Well, we can probably park the episode there and move on to our recommendations. Uh, so, Carl, what do you care to recommend for us this week? Uh, so, going with the theme of Atomic Fear, um, I wanted to recommend the movie that I think achieves the same sense of cold menace that this episode does. Although, what it does, uh, although there isn't a giant flying tube, there is nothing, and that's just as scary. Uh, it's a movie from 1963 called Ladybug, Ladybug, uh, written by Frank and Eleanor Perry and directed by Frank. Um, it's about a elementary school in upstate New York. And while the teachers are preparing for the morning, the civil defense alarm goes off. And according to all the little paper guidebooks and stuff they have to read what the alarms mean, means a nuclear war has started. But they're trying to figure out if it's a test or if it's a short circuit, nobody knows if there's an actual war happening. Uh, they try calling, you know, various district things, nothing happens. So eventually the principal, who is played by William Daniels, who uh, you'll probably know as Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World, uh, the principal decides to just send the kids all home for today. Um, and the teachers have to walk back the groups of kids to all their like rural country houses out in upstate New York. Uh, one of the teachers is Nancy Marchand, who you will know as Livia Soprano. Um, and the, the oh, rest wow. of the movie is just these groups of teachers and kids having to walk home. Um, and there is just this undeniable air of terror hanging over the entire movie. Um, it's, it's great. I don't know why more people don't talk about this movie. It's, I think it's like one of the best movies about atomic fear because it is, it is just that what has suffused into what should be some pretty boring pastoral shots of upstate New York. Um, and yet it hangs over the entire movie. It's excellent. Um, it is streaming on Pluto TV. That's the only place that it is streaming. And I will add that I am the VOD programming manager for Pluto TV. And I can't say any more beyond those two public facing things. So we'll leave it at that. Excellent. This sounds, good. It sounds very Twilight Zone. Would that be yes, a fair it, it comparison? Is, I would say it's like an 80 minute Twilight Zone episode. Yes. Okay. That sounds awesome. Uh, that, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Definitely. And like, yeah. you know, filmed at the same time in roughly the same place. So it, it, all the same vibes. Yeah. Excellent. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, Kev, what would you like to go for? Um, I mean, speaking of horror, uh, and, and uh, like with Carl's recommendation, there is a bit of a personal connection caveat in that I know this author and author, and I'm at least internet friends with her, but I'm pretty sure I'd recommend this book anyways. Um, it is uh, Brainworms by Alison Rumfit. Um, it's a wonderful uh, trans narrative um, very disgusting. If you could find a list of trigger warnings, if you are one who is triggered by sorts of things, I would look them up. There, It probably takes every trigger warning in the book, but it is about um, a trans woman named Frankie who finds this non-binary person, Vanya, and they get into a very um, kinky sexual relationship. But um, Vanya, they both have very specific fetishes that take things into interesting 
um, especially with Vanya's case, body horror directions, as well as there's a lot of like zoomed out, like commentary on class in Britain, but also especially transphobia in Britain as it exists right now. And like, that is like really pertinent to the novel is like how, like the idea of like brainworms, like these people who get in their head so much moral panic about the existence of trans people that they start doing outrageous and insane things. Um, and it's like not a pleasant book at all is not a pleasant read. It is very disturbing and disgusting, but like so gripping because of that at the same time, I cannot put this book down. It was just a difficult read, but it was a very rewarding one. Um, yeah, it's, and it's just fully frank and out there with what it's talking about, what it's morally standing against. Uh, there is down to the JK Rowling stand-in that meets a, that is a very gruesome character. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's wonderful. I highly recommend it if you have the stomach for it. Uh, Brainworms by Alison Rumfit. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to swing from um, one side of that perspective to the other. Uh, I'm going to go for something um, which is very childlike, if not childish. Uh, so I'm going to go for The Legend of Zelda, uh, Link's Awakening, and specifically the 2019 uh, re-release for the Switch. Um, I've never been that big a gamer, but when I have gamed, I've kind of fallen for things, sort of lock, stock, and barrel. So because um, I'm very old, like back in the 80s, I was a massive Elite fan, uh, and then eventually... Uh, Elite Frontier came out, which is fabulous. Uh, I was a Quake fan uh, and uh, Call, Call of Duty 2, I was a big player of, that kind of stuff. Um, but never, I never really became like a gamer. And I'm kind of addressing that because gaming has always been a bit of a, a bit of a hole in my sort of pop culture knowledge. And, and my, my excellent partner uh, has been encouraging me to uh, to play. So I played through uh, A Link to the Past, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And so I've been uh, nudged gently in the direction of uh, Link's Awakening. Um, and I adore it. It's an utterly delightful game. Uh, sorry for the potted biography of my gaming history. But um, yeah, it's just such a, an unbelievably charming piece of work. The, the graphics, which are sort of somewhere between sort of toys and plasticine, are just utterly beguiling it's so well put together um the you know the soundtrack is really really amazing we've talked about uh soundtrack in the episode of star trek but here like the soundtrack is just out of this world all the different versions of the zelda theme um it's just pitched exactly right more than enough difficulty to keep people engaged or to keep me engaged anyway, far be it for me to speak for anyone else, uh, but not so complex that it becomes frustrating or irritating. Uh, there's more than enough to do. Uh, it's not the longest game in the world, but it never outstays its welcome either. It's just a, a, a perfect balance of almost everything that I would want from a game. Uh, there's enough plot to engage you, but not so much that it gets in the way of stuff. It's just, it's just, one of the most delightful experiences I can remember having in a, a very long time. I, I utterly adore it. So if you have a Switch and you can, then uh, yeah, Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening is a hearty, hearty, and massive recommendation. Yeah, I have yet to play that remake, um, but the original Game Boy version is one of my, it's easily my favorite top-down Zelda in the like that 2D style. Um, and it's one of my favorites. Um, not just Zelda games, but also just games in general. I, yeah, like everything you said is completely accurate. It never says it's welcome. It's like the visuals are just very engaging and perfect. It's a perfect amount of story, a lot to explore and a lot of fun. It's just a really top to bottom great game. It has some like weirdness and almost like dreamlike touches, uh, fitting given how things play out in that game. Uh, that I wish more Zelda games and games in general would emulate, but yeah, in general, just just a wonderful, um, wonderful little game. Oh, I, I almost completely forgot to mention, um, like the the intro and the outro um, are done in a kind of anime style, which is almost kind of Studio Ghibli in style. Oh. I want so much more of that. It looks unbelievable. I could watch just like like if they ever do like a Zelda movie, like that's the style I want it in. It's so amazing. I just I just adored it. Okay, I can't I mean, wax lyrical about this forever, but you know, <laughs> I, God, I mean. 
how dare you put that in my mind? Because you know the Zelda movie will be like the Mario movie, like plain CGI style with a bunch of needle drops and weird jokes. Yeah, but come on, imagine it is like a Studio Ghibli, like properly animated, properly plotted. That's 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 what you want, right? Yeah. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> right. Whilst we drift off into a dream world, um, we can probably uh, start to draw things to a close. Um, Carl, do you have anything that you would like to plug? Ah. Uh... Not really, no. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter handle? Is it, is it still Twitter? X, Seventh Circle of Hell, whatever yeah, the hell it is. Not, uh, I, don't I don't know, know where that's going. <laughs> you can follow me at uh, Carl in space. Uh, I think... Well, when did you guys say this episode was airing? December 1st? December 1st, yeah. Okay, so I have no idea what I'll be doing around that time. So, yeah, <laughs> not, not much to plug then. Sorry. <laughs> that's quite all right um kev how would people get in touch with us should they so choose to do so yeah uh we are on twitter and blue sky talk trek to you on twitter talking trek to you full title on blue sky i'm on both the sites as well but i use blue sky more often as roadie on both jj's writings is at jjmcquarry.scott and you can also help other people find the podcast by like rating reviewing and subscribing also the plug other podcasts I am the um, co-host now of Total Massacre, the podcast created and hosted by Rowan Kaiser about currently sci-fi movies. Uh, We hopefully had two or three episodes come out in November about Steven Spielberg movies, and we also had Alien Under the Skin in October. Uh, And then you can also find JG's podcast, Beatles Stuffology, where he and Andrew Deacon go through the Beatles track by track. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us again, Carl. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast as always it is. Right, we can leave things there. Next episode, it's time to encounter something spooky. So it's going to be the Halloween episode. <laughs> I'm very interested in this one. It's going to be Cat's Paw. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. Keep talking.